Hey everybody, Buck Blue here, and as a recent customer of Jim Ellis Automotive and a longtime friend of the Vice President Stacy Ellis, man, I know Jim Ellis Automotive Group takes pride in being a family-owned and operated business. I saw it firsthand. When Stacy's granddad, Jim Ellis, founded the company back in 71, his goal was to treat every customer like family by offering a car buying experience that was both easy and fully transparent. And it worked. 50 years later, Stacy's dad, Jimmy Ellis, grew the organization to become Georgia's largest family-owned and operated automotive group. And today, third-generation family members like Stacy, along with more than 1,700 dedicated team members, are working hard to uphold the values Jim Ellis Automotive was founded on. And that's why Jim Ellis has been around for over 50 years. Enjoy the advantages of buying your next vehicle from a family-owned and operated dealership. Visit JimEllis.com or stop by any of their 20 dealerships located throughout Metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive, where you can always expect the best. It's time to face the music. It's your day in court with a people's lawyer, Bruce Hagan, and attorney Ray Giudice. Your day in court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Giudice. I always want you to know how to get a hold of these guys in case you're in need of legal expertise and there's no finer two lawyers than the two that sit in here with me this morning on Extra 106.3. Bruce, how do people get you in that case they need you? Oh, great to be here today. Easy to find me. It's Bruce at Hagen-Law.com is my email. H-A-G-E-N-Law.com is the website. You can call me 404-202-2233. Always available. We handle personal injury claims from simple soft tissue neck injuries that may not be quite so simple as they seem to the most complicated and catastrophic injury cases out there. So um, if you have a question about a case like that or really anything you need, just give us a call, send me an email, whatever it is. Happy to help you in any way that I can. Ray Giudice, 404-964-4185. That is my direct cell number. I answer it. 404-554-8800 is the office number right here in Roswell now. And, uh, you know, working all the trial courts in Metro Atlanta. I've got City of Atlanta tomorrow morning, Fulton County in the afternoon, City of Alpharetta Thursday morning uh, past week. So we just keep rolling as long as they're still selling gas and my car can get to the courthouse. I will represent you or your family members. So (laughs) There you go. If I can tie my pony up on a rail in front of the courthouse, I'd do that too. Good enough. I'm telling you, if you need help, these guys can help you. And look, uh, Ray being a defense lawyer uh, lawyer and uh, Bruce being a personal injury attorney, if your uh, encounter with the law doesn't fall under those categories, they will find you the right person to represent you and uh, get you the best legal coverage that you can get. So uh, let's start out today. We've had a um, FBI that uh, raided Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home in uh, Palm Beach, Florida. The uh, ex- uh, the FBI executed a search warrant, but to get that warrant, they had to go to a, a federal judge. And getting a, a a federal search warrant or a warrant at all seems like it would be a pretty difficult task. It is under the most uh, minimum circumstances. So, in other words. Uh, we think there is someone selling drugs out of a, of a home, and it's an amount that's a federal level or it's coming from out of state. The FBI goes in front of a magistrate judge. They swear out an affidavit, usually a couple of pages. They've got a, an informant, a hand-to-hand sale. They've got some evidence, good evidence, that is beyond, not beyond a reasonable doubt, maybe level evidence, but solid probable cause that a crime is being committed in that house. And we need either a search warrant and or an arrest warrant to get into that house. There's no knock warrants. We can make a brief aside to that because that's even a higher level 
of care and evidence that must be shown. Now, <clears throat> we're talking here, in this case, about a search warrant of a private property, not a business or a car that has less rights, less protections, of a former president of the United States and his office, his safe, his upper drawer and his desk. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't think that's ever been done before. No, I don't even first. think in Watergate that we got that that may have happened next if uh, Nixon didn't turn over the tapes and then the redacted tapes and all that. I think that's what Peter Rudino and those folks were going to do, Senator Sam Irvin. I've watched a lot of that recently. It was replayed uh, on either PBS or another channel. And, man, I lived through that. I was in 74. I was, what, 15, 16 years old, and I watched every minute Elizabeth Holtzman, think of the heroes. And I got to meet, just a brief aside, because that's what I do. <clears throat> I did get to meet Senator Baker, Howard mm-hmm. Baker, uh, several years ago. And my ex-wife uh, worked for his law firm, the Baker Donaldson Law Firm, out of, out of Ma- Memphis and Nashville, Tennessee. And I got to ask, meet the man who asked that question, what did the president know and when did he know it? And uh, we're probably at that stage now. That's what this warrant is. What did the president know or do? And did he he commit a crime or one of his staff members in apparently focusing on documents taken from the White House, the Oval Office, that should have been archived or sent to the Secret Service or the FBI? They should have been sealed. And the allegation allegedly in this affidavit from the FBI seeking the search warrant is that that office, that home, has reasonable certainty of containing documents that are linked to the commission of a crime, a federal crime. Yeah, including potentially inside a safe within the property. Right. Um, And so, you know, the idea that, hey, they broke into my safe. Well, there's a warrant that probably specifically said, may search the contents of any safes found on the premises. Um, It is not easy to get a warrant. You know, keep in mind that while this is a legal action, you know, none of us are so ignorant to think that there's not politics involved here. You're talking about a former president um, and you've got a uh, head of the FBI who was appointed by that same former president. You've got, we don't know who the judge was, I don't think at this point, who issued the warrant, but, you know, a federal judge was going to be viewing this. You've got the head of the Department of Justice who is certainly in the loop on this, whether the, the President Biden was in on it or not. The head of DOJ was, the head of the FBI was. And for this to happen and go to... Uh, a federal judge with an application to get a warrant and put on this kind of evidence, there had to be a virtual certainty that some sort of illegal conduct took place for them to take this step, understanding the catastrophic disaster that would fall on all of them and others if they're wrong, um, and then to persuade a judge that you should be the judge who signs your name to this warrant, understanding as hopefully all our listeners understand, that nobody is above the law in this country. We don't have kings. We have elected officials, and they have responsibilities to us as the people, and nobody is above the law. And understanding all of that, you know that this judge had to weigh heavily before he signed a warrant, understanding that I'm signing a warrant here to search the home of the former president, and this better be the strongest uh, presentation for uh, evidence of a potential crime I've ever seen. that judge, he or she, will be judged... For history in American history in law schools, that affidavit is going to be 
looked at by court of appeals, by law students, by law professors. There's going to be papers about it. Uh, but a couple quick things I'm, I'm Bruce wisely pointed out. So let's go back to our application. It's got to be specific as to what you're looking for, or at least the best description, and where it could be found. So let's, let's give an, uh, an example of what wouldn't work. Yeah, I want to search that house. I think there's a, a stolen 68 Camaro. Uh, and I want to look in the drawers and under the bed and upstairs in the attic. No, we're looking for a stolen 68 Camaro that is either going to be found in the front driveway, in the garage, or in the backyard. That's, that's, that's kind of it. You can't take that search warrant for that stolen 68 Camaro and go upside in the bedroom and find a pound of weed. That doesn't work that way, okay? Unless maybe you're looking for the keys, but you'd need to have some reference to that in the warrant okay, or in the application for the search warrant. So this had to be extremely specific as to what they're looking for and where they believe they're going to find it. Because not only did they search the premises, but they broke open the safe. Okay, now that's even another level of you better be darn close to being right or right. Wisely, Bruce points out the politics, which we don't know all of it, but that federal judge that signed the warrant application came to the bench under one of several uh, presidential, whether it was Bush or Obama or Clinton or, or Trump, uh, maybe not a direct appointment because that level of judge is not a, uh, a judge that has to go in front of the Senate for approval as a general rule. That's a, 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 dist- a court of appellate judge or a Supreme Court justice. But they still came up under a certain political philosophy. Uh, same with the, dist- the, uh, the U.S. attorney, same with the Department of Justice. They were all appointed or promoted under a certain political philosophy. And we don't know if this warrant is consistent with that that philosophy to which they or, or counter to that. And again, that going back to Watergate, that's what undid Nixon was when Barry Goldwater, the staunchest Republican of probably ever, walked into the White House and told Mr. Nixon he has no support amongst the Republican Senate. And that was led to the resignation. So again, where that politic political wind blows is going to be subject to a lot of conversation. Sure. And, and you know, look what a vastly different country we are compared to 1972, 1973, yes, 74, when this was taking place to now. You know, I mean, it, it seemed that there were still these folks who were bastions of their party who were committed to both the Constitution, the preservation of our American way of life and our system. And now it's almost like none of that matters. We're just polarized and tribal. And, and, I'm on this side, you're on that side. Um, you know, it would be fine, by the way, like, you know, sort of changing subjects, but it's pretty similar here. You know, people want to get into the qualifications of a specific candidate for Senate, um, how much somebody lies, has lied in the past about their qualifications, everything else. Essentially, if the, if the candidate said, yeah, you know, maybe I've lied some in the past, but here's, here's the truth I'm telling you right now. Elect me and I will vote 100% for the party that uh, is next to my name. That R next to my name or that D next to my name, I will, I will be in lockstep with whatever my commanders tell me to do, and I'll vote with them 100% of the time. That's, that's enough for whoever finds themselves in that faction. And it almost doesn't matter how unqualified that person might be if they're willing to do that. And, and it's really a shame that that's kind of where we've devolved politically. Yeah, um, and just a quick comment, too, especially in the United States Senate, which was designed and structured to be the chamber of debate, uh, with the great orators throughout his, American history came and 
did their 12-hour debates against each other and, and uh, sometimes agreed and sometimes disagreed and sometimes compromised. But to back to the politics of this, uh, this thing is game on. Now, one last thing. My understanding from prior uh, election campaigns is that the Department of Justice has a standing rule. It's a pretty serious rule about indictments of political figures close in time to an election. If you think back to uh, what was it, Justice Department to Comey, and there was the issue of missing emails from uh, Mrs. Clinton's tablet or her, her server, and he sat on that information rightly or wrongly, until after the election because it's sort of a rise. Bruce, am I getting this about right? 11 days before the Thank election. You, Bruce. Okay, so, and that would have been wrong to do. So now we have an election, midterm elections, 60-ish, 75 days from now, very important, national. But President, former President Trump is not on the ballot. So apparently the Department of Justice didn't feel that rule applied here. But it will clearly violate the spirit of that rule, in my opinion, because that search warrant... We're a, year, we're a year and three quarters of Mr. Trump leaving the White House. How come it's today that the subpoena is issued, the it's search warrant? Great questions and a great discussion here on Your Day in Court. With Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice, we'll leave it there. When we come back, you've heard about antitrust cases before, but there's a new one with the Live Tour. That is the Saudi-backed golf tour. We'll discuss antitrust and how they work next on Your Day in Court. Bruce Hagan, Ray Judice on Extra 106.3. Hey everybody, Buck Blue here, and as a recent customer of Jim Ellis Automotive and a longtime friend of the Vice President, Stacey Ellis, man, I know Jim Ellis Automotive Group takes pride in being a family-owned and operated business. I saw it firsthand. When Stacey's granddad, Jim Ellis, founded the company back in 71, his goal was to treat every customer like family by offering a car buying experience that was both easy and fully transparent. And it worked. 50 years later, Stacy's dad, Jimmy Ellis, grew the organization to become Georgia's largest family-owned and operated automotive group. And today, third-generation family members like Stacy, along with more than 1,700 dedicated team members, are working hard to uphold the values Jim Ellis Automotive was founded on. And that's why Jim Ellis has been around for over 50 years. Enjoy the advantages of buying your next vehicle from a family-owned and operated dealership. Visit JimEllis.com or stop by any of their 20 dealerships located throughout Metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive, where you can always expect the best. The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save and save and win. This is Your Day in Court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice on Extra 106.3. Welcome back to Your Day in Court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice on Extra 106.3. My name is Tug Coward. Getting into antitrust conversations because, look, we all like golf, but there is a, um, a lawsuit that's been filed. Mickelson, DeChambeau, and a bunch of the other live golfers, that's the Saudi-backed golf tournament, they filed antitrust lawsuits against the PGA for barring them, suspending them from playing in the PGA. So this seems like it could be um, 
it, it seems like it could be the, one of those heavyweight bouts, right? You got the live that's got plenty of money. You got the PGA that's got plenty of money, and all the golfers seem to have plenty of money. Yeah, it's uh, it's actually kind of ironic that the golfers do have plenty of money, and yet they're suing, claiming that you know the PGA uh, banning them from participating in PGA events due to their participating in the live tours, preventing them from making money. The reality is they're making a lot of money. Uh, by playing in the Live Tour, and and for many of those golfers, more than they would ever make on the PGA. So that becomes a whole different uh, issue there. Um, so, it, look, th- this is one of those things, you know, Ray and I tell our listeners and we tell everybody we meet, you have a problem, just call us, right? Like, <laughs> you, you got a primary care doctor, right? And if you had an issue with something strange in your body, you'd still start with your primary care doctor and say, doctor, who should I go talk to for this strange issue I'm feeling uh, and the and your primary care doctor would refer you to the right person, right? Um, consider us your primary care lawyers. Yeah, you, you, you've got a problem. <laughs> you come to us, right? BCL. So, so if um, Phil Mickelson had come to me and said, you know, I think that what's happening here with uh, the PGA Tour, since I announced that I'm going to play for the Saudis. Um, because I want to do my part to hit it down the middle to support the Saudi royal family. Um, they're, they're really impacting my ability to earn a living here, and I feel like I have an actual lawsuit here. This is not a case I would take myself. Mm-hmm. This, this is what I say. You know sure. what? Let me do this. Let me put you in touch with one of the people that I know at, at one of the big firms uh, around Atlanta or even anywhere in the country who this is their thing because it's a very complex area of the law, and, and you know what you're getting into is an enormous battle that's going to be uh, – it's going to involve lots of documents, tons of resources – um, and, you know, you need the person who does this and only this. And I think Ray would do the same thing. Well, that points out Bruce's professionalism and ethics. And what that means is a young lawyer or, or maybe a lawyer with with uh, fluid ethical concerns would say, heck, yeah, I can do that. I took a, a business law class in undergrad and a, you know, commercial real estate class in law school. And I'll take this case, Mickelson, and just write a big check and then scramble to try to figure it out. And probably get your butt kicked by some lawyer who specializes in antitrust law. So that that's I you know I do sometimes give younger lawyers advice, and my general advice is pick a major and a minor, get good at them, charge fair fees, and get friends that do the other areas of the law because it's not worth it. That's how you get. That's how you can lose your bar license as well. But also you just get diluted. The law is not just this big thing that we all understand. I mean, Bruce and I have been doing this so long that we can at least converse as we do every Saturday here on various legal topics, but that doesn't make us competent to go to the United States Supreme Court on an antitrust case, okay? We're not, we're not mm-hmm. we'd like to think that we can, mm-hmm. but we know we can't. Now, I, we could figure it out, Yeah, maybe. we could figure <laughs> it out, given enough time and uh, we're in sleepless nights. But the other thing about what these players are also arguing, if I understand correctly, is that by not being able to be on the PGA Tour, their earning capacity is not only restricted from not getting the prizes or the, or the wins, but from the exclusive licensing, licensing agreements that the PGA has with golf clubs and automobile manufacturers and beers and all the way down the line. They're prohibited from that. Also, you know what? You may win the uh, Dubai Open with 17 people watching on a Sunday morning, and get a big, big check, that's not play, like playing in the Masters, you know? And that's not like playing at that, what's that fancy place up in Westchester, the PGA. You know, I don't golf, I don't hunt, I don't fish, <laughs> yeah. so I'm I'm just going on right. things I've heard you boys talk about. No, you're right. And, and so it's going to be interesting because 
a lot of the guys who joined the Live Tour lost sponsorship deals. And so part of the question is, well, is that because they were banned from the uh, playing in the PGA and these um, businesses had exclusive deals with PGA? Or is it because the businesses themselves said, you know, we don't want to be associated with somebody who is associated with the Saudis, especially in today's era where, you know, just recently there were a boatload of documents disclosed that further support the Saudis' backing of the 9-11 bombings. You know, we don't want to be associated with that. Um, and if you do, that's fine, and that's your choice. You know, it's funny you mentioned prize money. Uh, I'm not sure if our listeners knew this, but um, there's a, a really interesting um, feature of the live tournament uh, structure for tournaments. If you win a live tournament, you get $10 million. This, this is my Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross routine. If you win, you get $10 million. If you come in second, you get $5 million. You come in third, you get beheaded. No, oh my. That's, <laughs> the Saudis, they don't play around. So, you know, you better do well. Yeah. Uh, no. Um, look, it, it's... Um, the discovery in this is going to be really interesting because here's where you're going to find out what sort of influence is the PGA having and are they muscling the, these businesses saying, you, you know, we're going to exclude them from playing, you need to stop using them as sponsors or we're not going to let you have access to PGA Tour. You need to stop um, backing them, covering them, paying them, and it really is creating an anti-competitive market. Um, right now you have a suit where 10 players collectively have sued the PGA. What is probably coming next is a separate suit from the Live Tour itself versus the PGA. And, you know, these cases have potential to be incredibly disruptive because if the claimants are right, the damages are enormous. And, and in an antitrust suit, you can get treble damages, right? Three times whatever the actual damages are. So if you can demonstrate, you know, as a group that, hey, the PGA's monopolistic hold on golf, which is illegal, has cost the Live Tour $500 million of potential TV revenue or whatever it might be, that becomes $1.5 billion, right? And this is why a lot of times cases settle. But what, where, what's the counter argument? Okay, go play on the European Tour. We're, we, the PGA, aren't prohibiting you from doing that. Uh, go play on the Asian tour. I'm not saying there is or isn't one. I don't mean to be slanderous. Yeah, right. But, but you know, there, there, there are other tours. There's, 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 other, there's other yeah. places yeah. to play sure. golf. You know, take your clubs down to the local club and beat the local pro and, you know, make a bet. What's that movie? Caddyshack, right? That's right. You know, yeah, hey. Bill Murray, come on. That <laughs> happens movie. every weekend in Atlanta, <laughs> right? There's, there's money changing hands. So I think they've got a problem because the PGA is not the only game in town. And quite frankly, the European tour is enormous. Yeah. yeah, and the Masters and, and the other majors are kind of handled separately. I mean, obviously the PGA Championship is, is PGA, but uh, U.S. Open, Masters, British Open, you know, they, they're not bound by PGA, even though PGA may I mean, these guys played in the, in the British Open just recently, didn't they? Yeah. Well, then, you know, it so, dilutes, so, so it dilutes the argument. It, it, it certainly does. Um, so, so, you know, the idea that you're preventing competition and you're preventing us the ability as players to earn as much as we possibly can. You know, that's kind of the essence of antitrust. And this is in, in other aspects as well, right? You know, this competition is good for everybody is our belief. And when you do things that are anti-competitive here, then that you're exposed. But, but here, look at these players. They're making more money. Well, I was just about to say, let's look through this through the political lens. Like it or not, we're in the middle of a Democratic administration and we have People that run the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Antitrust Department of the Attorney General's Office that are appointed by a, 
a Democratic president or influenced by their concerns and themes. Now, uh, there was a big haboo about recently about two airlines joining forces or merging. What was that? Spirit and JetBlue. And one of the reasons that the merger didn't go through was that they really knew they were going to go up against it with the Biden administration saying, no, 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 we can't have another one more big airline like Delta and United American and, and Southwest. Then there's only five of y'all splitting it up and that's not competitive. And the second component Bruce, Bruce puts out the first one is, you know, does it pr- prohibit my ability to earn a living? But from this administration, a more of a democratic administration, I think the second component is, does this affect the general public? Does this affect folks? Are they not getting their medicines because Merck and Pfizer and Shearing Plow all joined forces and won't make insulin anymore? I mean, those are the kind of questions that I think this administration is going to shrug their shoulders. I will, too. I mean, who cares? A bunch of millionaires, multimillionaires, can't play golf, you know, at a certain country club. Yeah. I mean, I just don't think... That's where the resources, plus, you know what, we've got limited resources, but the case is going to get filed, it's going to go in front of a judge, and it's going to be litigated. Yeah, and and, you know, when Phil Mickelson comes along saying, saying, you're hurting my ability to earn a living here, and you're inhibiting me by your, you know, horribly monopolistic actions, um, when he just got paid $200 million to join the Live Tour just for showing up, uh, you know, it's a a little bit of a tough argument. But the way this case will go is is not uncommon in, in litigation. There will be... A lot of exchange of information that takes place through the discovery process that the court will oversee. They may seal a lot of that information, meaning the public should not be allowed to learn about it because it, it's so central to the business model of these two groups that are involved that um, they may protect this from just being disclosed. And based on the information that comes out, there will be motions filed for summary judgment, meaning the PGA will say to the judge, judge, these are the this is the information that's been developed under oath through the discovery process. And based on this information, there's no viable legal theory that allows the claimants to recover any money. And therefore, judge, you should throw this case out. This should never get to a jury. And the, and the um, attorneys for the players will argue, no, judge, there are these facts that have come out in the discovery process. And, and these facts, if they're decided by the finder of fact, which is a jury, in favor of the players would support a theory of recovery against the PGA. And because there are material facts that are still disputed, this case cannot be thrown out as a matter of law, must go to a jury to decide those facts. And so you might see the case get severely streamlined by a judge who's saying, all right, there's only this issue that there's a factual dispute on, so we're only allowing that theory to move forward. Or you might see the entire thing go forward, or you might see the entire thing get thrown out um, and then, of course, appeals process or compromised. Yeah, well, so I was about well, to ask. That's, that's how cases get settled. Is when, is when there's risk on both sides, we know that's how cases get settled. When the AFL challenged the NFL back in the '60s and was threatening litigation, and who was drafting who, and Namath signed with the Jets, and all of a sudden everybody got in a room and said, "You know what, guys? There's just so much money to be made, so let's absorb the AFL." And now we're, you know, now we're the NFL. Yeah. When the World Hockey League challenged the NHL, same thing. Four or five more teams came in, which the NHL was probably going to expand to, and everybody made money. The WFL sued and beat the NFL, and the jury gave them a dollar. Maybe it was the judge. So I think there's going to be the transfer of money. 
Yeah, because there's just but, so much of it. But just a dollar? You think it'll be like a... a no, no, no. I think say, it'll get settled. Okay, yeah. I think it'll get settled. And I think it'll... Look, the Saudis can buy their way out of anything, and they do. Uh, the PGA is a, is a great receptacle of other people's money, and they take it. So I think this is going to get worked out. You'll see the European Tour, the Live Tour, the PGA Tour figure out a way that these guys can keep printing money and playing great golf. And te- Because what Live needs is access to the TV audience. That's... That's what they need. Now, you'd think with all the streaming and all their portals, but you know what? Where do you turn to on Sunday on day three or four of a tournament? What channel do you turn? You know, it's CBS, right? They own Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that can't be altered, but it's like ABC football on Monday nights growing up. They own that. So Liv wants a piece of that action. And, And look, this is a disruptor. You may disagree with what's happening. You may not like it. Um, this is a major disruption to something that has just been almost a way of life. We've seen this happen with the NCAA recently. You know, I mean, the NCAA has had this sort of cushy role as, as the rules maker and, and overseer of collegiate sports, you know, based on what? Right. We, we've granted them the ability to do this. Well, yeah, the, the schools that participate grant them. Right. That, right? And, and, and more and more you're seeing the conferences saying, we don't we, need we you. We don't need the NCAA. Why? why and do, they're right. And and so you know you have to wonder what is what purpose does the NCAA serve and will serve over the next 10, 20, 30 years? And so the NCAA is scrambling because whenever somebody has some degree of power or control, I don't Leverage. care what is they want to hang on to it. it. It it just you know it's it's the nature of of institutions and people. You know, you give me something, I don't need something, but if you give it to me, I, I'm going to want to hold on to it. Right. And and so here they are, you know the PGA Tour with that has created this great thing. And now that somebody's coming in here to challenge it and challenge their exclusivity to that, um, you might not like it because you disagree with the Saudis and the way they run their country and their record on human rights, whatever. Um, it, it could be another American corporation that's doing this saying We're going to come in and challenge here and you'd have the same thing. You know, and so the difference is the Saudis don't need the money and have the money to fight this thing to the end. But it gets really emotional because people are that that being the the case, who's backing the league is why people, I think, have the biggest issue. I mean, it's certainly the reason I have the issue with them. But but look, I don't I don't pretend that the PGA is innocent. Right there. There. I I think they have some some uh, backing that that most Americans, if they knew about, would probably struggle with as well. They are not an institution, which I think is a fancy word for charitable. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, that's okay. right. They're, yes, sir. They're I in like it that. for the green bucks. That's right. And uh, just like everybody involved. And again, I think that as the antitrust case moves forward, I think that's kind of the undercurrent is hey, wait a second. Does this really affect the public, the citizenship that we're, as a government institution, are supposed to protect? Is this what the law of antitrust was designed to do? A bunch of millionaires arguing about where they can park their yachts. That's essentially <laughs> what we're talking right. about here. Right. Yeah, it gets it gets sideways really, really quick. But uh, but so so how do we see this shaking out? What do you end all be all? What happens? You go into you go into probably um, a year of litigation. Okay. Uh, the lawyers look here. Let me just tell you now, when you hire a lawyer like Bruce or I on either a flat fee or a contingency fee, meaning we've got to win, mm-hmm. we've got to be successful, or this is the fee for the case from soup to nuts. But when you hire these guys and gals. They're paid per hour, and when you're paid by the hour as a lawyer, you're going to be extremely thorough. Is that <laughs> <be a> fair <laughs> sure. members? It's amazing it's how, amazing how, you how much research into a single day. How much? <laughs> I, I had a law professor at Emory Law School, 
and he was involved in the TWA litigation, which which is an antitrust case against Pan Am mm-hmm. and back in the day. And he bragged to us how he once billed 36 hours in a 24-hour day because he had to fly from New York to L.A. for depositions. Crossing So he billed those five hours, (laughs) six hours, spent a day in Los Angeles taking depositions and thinking hard, and billed for the six hours coming back. Goodness. Okay? Now, that's 1982, guys, when I started law school for exactly 40 years ago, and that would be frowned upon even at our largest yeah, institutions. Maybe so, but you know, I, I read something in the uh, Atlanta legal papers here that the folks at the largest law mm-hmm. firms now are billing, uh, some of them are billing $2,000 an hour and, and upwards. Um, you know, so why rush? Right. <laughs> no, you but know, be thorough. That's be thorough. Be of course. thorough. <laughs> I mean, if there's a stone there, we're going to look under it and see what's there. Uh, I, I had a, a friend who was a mediator and, and you know, mediators are an important um are playing an important role in our system of helping two sides reach an agreement to resolve it without having to um, take up the resources of courtroom time and without having to take on the risk of ad- adverse results in court. But th- this guy says that his wife would tell him the same thing every day when he'd leave for work. Talk slowly, honey. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You know? And I laugh because at some of these mediation centers, uh, and they've gotten bigger and bigger as, as mediation. They get Forrest Gump in there talking. Well, well it's, not, it's not even that, but like, you know, the, you, you come together at a mediation. I know we've done this show and talked about this, but you come together, you sit in a room with all the parties together, and then after everybody's kind of laid out what their side is about, you split up and go to separate rooms. And it's like, it's amazing to me how, long how they it always takes. put one person's room all at one corner of the office and the other person all the way at the far and, end. And, and, and the mediator stops to talk to every lawyer and mediator they see along the way between rooms. And then rooms. they serve the warm cookies, which is another <laughs> oh, 15 yeah. minutes to no, it's it, But you know what? The, listen. There's a there's also a very valid reason for what you're talking about, and when I was before I was even a lawyer, I was I was kind of a clerking running errands for a little old law firm in Decatur, and one of the wise old lawyers said, "Son, every case is it's like a kitchen, every case has got its cooking time. Some cases you got to put it in a microwave and hit it fast, and some you got to put it in a crock pot and let the slow heat take the meat let off it the, let it take the meat <laughs> off the bones. And sometimes in a mediation, if you've really contentious you know you're not making any progress until, especially in the winter when the sun starts going down and it's getting dark, and here in Atlanta everybody's looking at their watch saying, oh, man, i got to get out on 285 at 5. I want to get home. i, I got to get the kids from school. All of a sudden everybody gets serious. Yep, and you know, to your point about the cookies, <laughs> nobody ever settled the case on an empty stomach. No, <laughs> no, not when it's Tommy growling. Now, yeah. there, are ju- there are judges that they'll put that jury in there, and you're not leaving. You may get pizza. At 9.30, but you, your tummy could be ground, but you're not going home until you yeah. come out with a verdict. <laughs> and, and it wouldn't surprise me if the judge um, mandated mm-hmm. some degree of mediation in this live case to say that, hey, look, before we're going to be uh, forced to have to make a decision, either the judge on a motion for summary judgment or um, a jury in a, in a trial, um, the judge is going to say, you're mediating this case. And and they might even say, I'm appointing a mediator. Sometimes they use the federal magistrates uh, in that role, and sometimes they'll just take you know, some expert in antitrust who is, or, or more likely some mediator who has resolved antitrust cases in the past, to bring them in and say, y'all sit down and, and don't come back to me until you've Streamlined made it a good minimum. faith right. attempt to resolve this, and I'm going to hear the report back from the mediator directly, so I'll know if one side or the other is the problem here and why this case isn't getting resolved. 
It's a pretty heavy-handed approach to dispute resolution, but you know the judges don't mess around. And and even with the lifetime appointment that federal judges have, they don't want to have to be in the position of doing this and then have their name attached to an appeal and have you know these days have lunatics outside their door, um, you know, burning effigies, uh, you know, in the street and uh, just creating you havoc. Know, for the, them. the law favors the resolution of conflicts. Every lawyer and judge is taught that, meaning try to work it out, compromise. Uh, a judge in a federal district court has got 47 c- cocaine conspiracy cases pending, uh, you know, 150 RICO cases, all these, uh, what was the P- PPP cases mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Uh, the last thing a judge really wants to do, while they may be a little starstruck for the first day or two, they don't, think of the poor judge that had to sit through six weeks of the Johnny Depp and what's-her-name oh, trial. Amber Heard, wow. and, and every lawyer in that courtroom and courthouse is saying, Hey, you know, I have a, my guy's in jail. He's been wrongfully charged of a serious crime, and we've got a speedy trial de- demand pending, and your guys are wasting our court time, our jury time, our bailiff's time on nonsense. And I can really see whatever federal district court judge gets this case saying, oh, no, it's not going to eat up six months of my calendar. I got serious work to do. And most judges feel that way. What, right. if, what if they're very close in mediation? And, you, and, and I don't even know the, really how very close could be. But let, let's say that, that both sides are – they kind of get close with mediation, but they don't get there. Is there something the judge can do to step in and, and, and help those kind of come together with the fact that they're already really close? Absolutely. And, and you know, it, it depends on the judge's style. And, mm-hmm. and judges view these things differently. Some are much more heavily involved in the, that process. Um, and some would say, look, that's just not the judge's job. Right? Like a lot and of just ju- let it fly. Some judges say, look, it's not my job to help you guys work this out. I'm I'm just here to be the referee or to be the umpire and call balls and strikes and 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 I'm not here to tell you you have to pay this or you have to accept that right. Other judges will be much more proactive with it and get into the middle of it and and you know as litigants I'm not trying to get the judge on my side necessarily but I'm also not trying to piss Take off the judge off, yeah. and 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 have the judge know that because I am being unrealistic in my approach and, and in advocating for my client, or rather my client is being unrealistic about this, that now I've alienated the judge to the point that I can't expect any rulings to go my way on any jump ball in this case. You know, um, I'm not saying that the judge is going to um, take a big leap against me you know, on, a, on an issue of law that's so clearly in my favor. But when I say jump ball, I mean, there are a lot of rulings that come up in the course of every trial that are completely within the judge's discretion. And and they can go either way on it, and there's there's no way to— Mr. Hagan, to, I'm not going to give you that jury charge you want. That I don't. Right. I find that to be a, a prejudicial. Yeah, and or, you know, this witness isn't available, judge. We need, we need a, a trial continuance. Trial starts at 9 tomorrow, Mr. Be ready Hagen, at 9. Be ready. You know, Get your so case in a can. Right. There are a lot of things that a judge decides in every single case— that um, you know, you need more than half of those to go in your favor, right? And so I don't, I don't want to put myself in that position. So yeah, there are some judges, state court judges in particular, not to name names, who who will get really after it with the parties and and push you get their to hands settle dirty. those cases. Yeah. yeah, and and it's and it's because, like Ray says, the the system is overwhelmed with cases right now, and you know these judges have a mandate to clear your calendar, and, and it's like get these things resolved. And if, and if the judge can spend an hour. With the parties that leads them to get a case settled and avoid three days, five days, two weeks of trial time in court, he, that judge has done a great thing for the system. You know, one thing I don't know if we ever really raised in our previous shows that in Georgia, 
We don't have judges that are specifically set aside for criminal cases and specifically set aside for civil litigation. We have some divisions, like the family law division, that two or three judges per couple of years would only do family law divorce. It's only because that's about all you can take before you're ready to <laughs> commit Harry Carey. But so most of our Metro Atlanta Superior and State Court judges have two weeks of criminal, two weeks of civil, two weeks of criminal, but the criminal just keeps backing up. Mm-hmm. And the civil keeps backing up. But judges get elected and unreelected uh, elected based on a backlog, not of real estate disputes, not of whiplash, auto accident cases, but of criminal cases where the DA stands on the courthouse steps and says, these judges aren't moving these cases. And the public defender office says, we have 2,200 guys in the Fulton County Jail, the judge. So that's the emphasis. So as Bruce Wisely points out, if on a financial dispute and you're 5% away from what would settle the case, mm-hmm. there's a number of judges that we call it the hot box. Right. They, Let's go back in chambers and talk for a few <laughs> minutes. Madam court reporter, we don't need you in the yeah, back. Right. And I've, I, there was a DeKalb County judge, and I love him. He'd bring you back on a personal injury case, which I've handled a few. And he would go through his notebook of the last year's verdicts and say, you want to just, here we go. You think it's worth this? This jury said, no. I mean, and you know, you're obligated to go tell the client what just happened that you got taken to the woodshed. Right. Yeah. My goodness. It that, seems like it could be that a- judge uh, was on my list of like <laughs> judges that I never want to be in front of because his book was not a book intended to get the book. insurance companies to pay you no, more it money. Didn't help us. His book was to tell the person sitting next to me, the plaintiff, the one who's suing, like, you're going to lose this case. Here's how little money the juries have come back with, and you need to take whatever their last offer was. And in that jurisdiction, it has changed 180 degrees from those days of of zero verdicts, or they give you the ambulance bill and the emergency room bill. Not anymore. I I, I once said to that judge, Judge, do you happen to have results from other judges' courtrooms within the same (laughs) courthouse? Because that has not been my experience. Right. And and so, you know, I say, I was younger, and say things like that, you know, at my peril, because it's like, all right, now this judge hates me, too. It's like, all right, he's old. You've got to be retiring soon. He's actually a wonderful human being. Yeah, nice man. Really nice. nice. Yes. When we come back on Extra 106.3 in your day in court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice, We talked about uh, expenses that you can challenge. What about your tax bill? How do you do that? We'll talk about it next here on Your Day in Court. Hey everybody, Buck Blue here, and as a recent customer of Jim Ellis Automotive and a longtime friend of the Vice President, Stacey Ellis, man, I know Jim Ellis Automotive Group takes pride in being a family-owned and operated business. I saw it firsthand. When Stacey's granddad, Jim Ellis, founded the company back in 71, his goal was to treat every customer like family by offering a car buying experience that was both easy and fully transparent. And it worked. 50 years later, Stacy's dad, Jimmy Ellis, grew the organization to become Georgia's largest family-owned and operated automotive group. And today, third-generation family members like Stacy, along with more than 1,700 dedicated team members, are working hard to uphold the values Jim Ellis Automotive was founded on. And that's why Jim Ellis has been around for over 50 years. Enjoy the advantages of buying your next vehicle from a family-owned and operated dealership. Visit JimEllis.com or stop by any of their 20 20 dealerships located throughout Metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive, where you can always expect the best. 
The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save and save and win. This is your day in court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice on Extra 1063. Welcome back to Your Day in Court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice. I'm going to give you the opportunity to uh, get in touch with these guys. We'll teach you where you can go to find expert legal advice at the end of this segment. Give us about eight minutes because we're going to talk about first how if you get a tax bill that is way, way higher than you were expecting, because I think that may have happened to somebody in this room, how do you go back and how do you challenge it? Bruce, we'll start with you. Yeah, let's start with me. I, I received a tax bill recently, and uh, the county decided that um, my property had increased by 82% in value from last year to this year. And I understand that the real estate market has gone up. Um, it hasn't gone up that much. And and so, you know, I'm looking at this and thinking like, okay, I have some skills, you know, 35 years as a practicing attorney, three years of law school, the ability to argue out of a paper bag. Um, I'm going to file an appeal here. What do I do? Um, and, and not surprisingly, there's a whole process for this. And, and I would just say that if you are faced with this sort of situation, um, you don't have to get a lawyer to do it. You, you can do these yourself. Um, there are companies out there that will help you and will do it for you. And some of them, you know, I think there are different financial arrangements that they have. Some of them will take a fee based off of how much they save you on your bill. Um, but it's not magic. And, and so among the things you can do, first of all, pay close attention to the deadlines that you have and follow everything to the letter of what it says there. And it'll tell you right on the notice of that, you know, you've got 45 days to file your appeal in writing. And, and that's just the start of it, and it doesn't have to contain all the magic theories that you might have as to why this is improper, but it's basically putting on notice that I'm filing an appeal. Um, there's a thing called the Board of Equalization, which is a group of citizens from the county where, you, where your property is located that will step in, and they can hear an appeal um, as to why this assessment was unfair, and they get to make a decision that can become binding if you choose to accept it. Um, there are, of course, appellate rights. It can take you all the way through the court process. And if you do go that far with it, then you really do want to get a lawyer involved to help you because anytime you're dealing with a court or a judicial process, you're going to be up against folks who do this for a living and, and are trained in how to do it. And so, you know, there are appraisers out there you can use. Um, all the tax records on property are available to the public. So whatever county you're in, you can go to their website. You can pull up your property and see what the taxes are on the surrounding properties, how their uh, bills have been um, changed. If you are being singled out, let's say, like if my if my um, valuation goes up by 82% and my neighbors went up by 10%, right, I can say, hey, look, this is not right. I should do, I should be treated as my neighbors do. And Probably the county response would be, okay, thanks for pointing that out. We'll raise, raise your neighbors too. up yeah, to 2% right. too. <laughs> and by the way, we're going to make sure they know that it's because oh, you told no. us that we did that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I agree with Bruce. While you, you may not want to hire a lawyer on this, you should approach it as if you are a lawyer. And that means step one, get the time frames set down. Don't, don't 
wait till the last minute. The king, the sovereign, does not make it easy to either sue the king, and we've talked about sovereign immunity and statutes of limitations and, and elitium notices and other shows. So same thing with the tax board, the king's tax board. Not going to make it easy, but they do lay out the rules, and I will say that in my interactions with the Fulton County Tax Commissioner, I have been very impressed with how much information is available online and how helpful, quite frankly, the employees and the people at the tax commissioner's office have been to me. So uh, Bruce is right. Get comparables. And that doesn't mean, you know, just barbecue, pool barbecue talk about Joey sold his house for X and how much do you think it's worth? And I had a real estate agent. No, you need to get facts. What's the square footage? What is the average square footage price and the comparables in the neighborhood in the last 12 months? Maybe some aerial photographs showing why your property has is, is you know you've got a you've got a highway behind you and it creates noise so it's not going to be that easy to get the full fair market value. What distinguishes your property from the other properties in the neighborhood? Maybe you do need to be down in that twenty percent increase rather than the eighty percent increase. So approach it like you're proving your case because that's what you're doing. Because if you lose, now you've set the marker. At the 80% increase for the next increase. Right it's, right. it's it's the reverse of Einstein's theory of compounding interest. Yeah, you're being compounded by the government. You're being pounded yeah. by the government. And, okay? and the other thing is that when, when you do this appeal, um, you also, I believe, you freeze your property value assessment for the next three years mm-hmm. after that. So so it's sometimes it's worth doing it just, that. just so they don't continue to increase you. There's a lot of information available uh, online dor.georgia.gov is the Department of Revenue site that has state law on this. Um, your county tax assessor's office will have a website, and there's a lot of specific information there. Um, the Department of Revenue doesn't get involved in these appeals, but they, they lay out the framework for what goes into it. And, you know, that's whether you choose to take this to your county board of equalization, like I mentioned earlier, that you can get a hearing officer, you can even arbitrate. Um, so, all your rights are spelled out online. It's it's not that hard to, to understand, but it's certainly, if you feel like you're being treated unfairly, you should absolutely pursue right. it. Right. Take good notes. Write down the name of everyone you spoke to, their number. Don't just say, well, I talked to Sally down there, and she told me. And, you know, the best way to keep up your pants is suspenders and a belt. There you okay? go. Okay? <laughs> so be redundant. Right. Make sure you've got a date stamp if you file the document. Make sure you've got a paper trail or an electronic trail of emails and communications and save those print them up put them in your cloud don't just stick something with a stamp on it and think that's going to get there in time or be delivered to the right person that's not what a lawyer would do so make sure you if you've got to go to the clerk's office or the commissioner's office you give them the documents they put in a little thing that looks like a stapler and it prints a date stamp for you make sure you get a copy there you go make sure you're prepared and if you need great legal advice I encourage you to reach out to Ray and Bruce. This is how you get a hold of them, Bruce. Always easy to get a hold of me. My cell number is 404-202-2233. You can also email me, Bruce, at hagen-law.com, H-A-G-E-N-law.com. We've got a ton of great information on our website uh, if you're just uh, interested. But uh, if you want a specific answer to a specific question, shoot me an email or give me a call. Yeah, Ray Judice, 404-964-4185, RayJudiceLaw.com. That's my webpage, and it's got some information about me and some video lectures I've given, and maybe that'll have you to come talk to me, and maybe you'll run in the opposite direction screaming. But uh, either way, I'm trying to be 
uh, informative and helpful. There you go. But if you run into maybe a tax issue, you guys could probably recommend a tax lawyer, right? We got some great ones. Yeah, Absolutely. there you go. Easy to get a hold of, easy to get help from the best lawyers in the city of Atlanta, in the state of Georgia, maybe in the country, and we've even goofed in the universe. In the world. In the world. In known universe. That's exactly right. Uh, Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice here on Extra 106.3. We appreciate you spending time with us. You can always listen to this show in podcast form. You can find it on any of the podcast platforms that you use, like Apple and uh, Google Play, Amazon, Spotify, any of those. You can always find the Your Day in Court podcast edition if you missed it here on the radio if you're just catching the back half of it and want to go back and listen to more wherever you get your apps or wherever you get your downloads wherever you get your podcasts you can find this show there just search for your day in court that does it for us y'all have a great weekend Hey everybody, Buck Blue here, and as a recent customer of Jim Ellis Automotive and a longtime friend of the Vice President, Stacey Ellis, man, I know Jim Ellis Automotive Group takes pride in being a family-owned and operated business. I saw it firsthand. When Stacey's granddad, Jim Ellis, founded the company back in 71, his goal was to treat every customer like family by offering a car buying experience that was both easy and fully transparent. And it worked. 50 years later, Stacy's dad, Jimmy Ellis, grew the organization to become Georgia's largest family-owned and operated automotive group. And today, third-generation family members like Stacy, along with more than 1,700 dedicated team members, are working hard to uphold the values Jim Ellis Automotive was founded on. And that's why Jim Ellis has been around for over 50 years. Enjoy the advantages of buying your next vehicle from a family-owned and operated dealership. Visit JimEllis.com or stop by any of their 20 20 dealerships located throughout Metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive, where you can always expect the best. The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save. And save and win. Camp Margaritaville RV Resort, where you can just breathe in and breathe out. (sighs) Or move. There's biking, boating, arcade games, hiking, nearby golfing. Or fly through the new Fins Up Water Park. Thrills, chills, twists, and turns. This could be you. Camp Margaritaville at Lanier Islands. An easy one-hour drive from Atlanta. Book your stay today at CampMargaritavilleLanierIslands.com.